Hello and welcome to the third of our podcast series from Home Group. I'm Dr Nick and today we're going to talk candidly about the Transforming Care programme, barriers to integration and most importantly how we can all make a difference. As we record this, autumn's kicking in, so we're back indoors, obviously in a socially distanced space. Today, we're in Newcastle City Centre, and I'm joined by my very special guest, Dr Chris Ince, who's a consultant psychiatrist. It's great to have Chris with us today. We're really appreciative of him giving up some of his personal time. So, I suppose it's over to you, Chris. Thank you for joining us today think it would be really interesting for people to understand a bit about who you are just that to reassure people I haven't dragged in a random person off the street and said talk about psychiatry and transforming care. Okay Uh, I'm Chris Ince I'm a consultant psychiatrist within the locality mental health trust uh, Cumbria Northumberland Tyne and Weir primarily working within the specialist inpatient autism service based at Northgate Hospital um, that's a national referral service for people with highly complex needs, uh, usually those who have been uh, stuck within inpatient services for a considerable period of time. And uh, we have a treatment pathway of about 18 months with a view to get them out into the community, although that's not always successful. And as we'll probably talk about, COVID has significantly impacted upon that. And then I also have a role uh, providing some input into the Newcastle Community Learning Disability Team. So therefore, I see it from the other side in terms of those people who we are very much trying to prevent getting into hospital. Previously, I was also CQC Specialist Advisor. uh, So I participated within inspection visits, both in terms of uh, mental health inpatient trusts, uh, community trusts, but also a little bit into the social care sector as well Mm, so you're a bit of a busy fella some might say a little bit yeah just a little bit so given that you have you said about 18 months length of stay in your service what types of things do you do with these patients when they move through because I imagine they're coming to you you know with considerable complexity and you have to do quite a lot to get them ready to maybe move on yeah I mean the the autism service at Northgate Hospital has been in existence for a considerable period of time, but we, we moved into a um, purpose-built 15-bedded unit in November 2016. And it's acknowledged as being broadly unique within the NHS and broadly unique within the sector uh, in terms of uh, the physical environment, in terms of our ability to control all aspects of environment water electrics ambient temperature lighting heating doors um it's acoustically very dead from a sensory perspective it's pretty plain but that's very deliberate it's steel framed which the builders hated because none of the walls are 90 degrees and it's got interesting little things like the fact that none of the sky the, the orientation of the building this, this is my pop, pop <laughs> fact about it the orientation of the building is such that at no point within the year does the sun ever cast a direct um patch of sunlight on the floor through any of the skylights so there's no shadows that's going no. to disrupt anybody yeah. excellent so uh transition points all the way through etc etc um it's lovely uh there are things we would change if we could, but then that's true of any building, as, and we have made modifications to it. I mean, the, the purpose of it is essentially the fact that the core 
patient group that we take sort of falls into two groups but a lot of them have come to us from significant periods in isolation seclusion long-term segregation and therefore there's huge issues around sensory deprivation in terms of isolation from people uh, and significant rates of anxiety comorbid mental illness so our admission doesn't actually start at the point of our admission our admission probably starts three to six months beforehand in terms of a very detailed information gathering uh, in terms of transition planning, in terms of baseline assessments pre-admission, so that we can essentially try and stage the environment for the person when they're admitted on the basis of everything that we know about them, so that then we're not trying to force change upon someone with a core diagnosis of ASD, which in itself is anxiety-provoking. So the aim is to do all the changes before they get there, uh, and also to try to gather all the information, because the difficulty is information gets lost over time, um, and information gets distorted and views get distorted and people come with labels and diagnostic labels and people come with labels of being dangerous uh, and a lot of it is actually about dispelling those sorts of myths so uh, just for the for anybody who might be listening who's not an expert can you tell tell us in layman's terms what does complex look like for somebody like you in your area of expertise because you said asd can you just explain a little bit of that um <clears throat> complex is one of those terms that creates a huge amount of debate yeah. as you will know yeah. you know and, and a lot of people say that complexities is derived by the system in which people are in rather than them being complex in themselves and usually complex is one of those terms that gets banded about uh, when people are um they're, they're difficult or people uh, services are struggling to manage someone are struggling to it's because they're complex it's because they're complicated they have complex needs and usually what it suggests to me is that actually it's because the service isn't appropriate in meeting the person's needs uh, or doesn't understand the person or hasn't got the right amount of information we have some complicated people within our service but a lot of the time they've been made complicated by services and what i mean by that is in terms of the fact that they'll come on hideous amounts of medication, which we then have to try and strip out. They'll come with five or six different diagnostic labels. They'll come with labels and diagnoses that are frankly contradictory. And they'll be set on service pathways as well, which are often frankly unhelpful. And they'll have come from services that are burnt out, broken. Not fit for purpose. Not fit for purpose. Yeah. Uh, there'll be therapeutic nihilism. And by that, what I mean is it's just like people have given up all hope of trying to do anything constructive. Um, and they've just sort of been shut away somewhere. And it's just, so, you know, there's a, there's a huge amount at the beginning, actually, of, of dispelling the myths, getting a shared understanding, talking to people who know the person, like the parents who are, yep, you know... Experts on their child. Yes, yep. but are previously seen as pariahs because they they challenge mm -hmm. and they question quite rightly um and, and and actually sort of trying to get a trying to get a, everyone going in the same direction i think the other the other things that are very key to us and actually is our big stumbling block is that we aim to have a defined commitment or actually a discharge plan identified by the ccg and the local authority for the person's home area because we're a national service from the point of admission so one of our admission criteria is actually around the local authority and CCG actively discharge planning. 
because that's that's what should be happening and also that's what should be happening in terms of transforming care and in terms of CTR processes. So you're quite a unique small service because what was it 15 or 18 beds? Uh, Midford's 15 and we've got some ancillary beds as well so we maximum we'll have in the service at any one time is about 20 patients. And you take them people from all over the country which usually means that if they're having to move from I don't know Birmingham that they're quite far away from their families which isn't ideal either is it? I really like the point that that Chris you've made around systems and maybe that the systems and the way in which traditional services currently work aren't necessarily geared up to really help the number of patients that we've got and people who have these unique traits um, and that your 18-bedded unit is fabulous, delivers wonderful outcomes, but is it a drop in the ocean compared to the number of people that need the help? I think... I think I'd, I'd, I'd take slight issue with you with you saying unique because actually I you know I think there's lots of yeah, yeah there's lots of people people and as I said some of the complexity I'm going to oh, I don't like that phrase but I'm going to use it anyway some of the complexities that will be yeah. suggested you know are an artifact of inpatient treatment yeah. you know they are caused by the very environments that we put people in that are inappropriate for them that are congregate so therefore they're living with a bunch of the people who all have their own differing sensory needs who all have their own different communication styles and everything that goes with that and then that's just not going to work that's like me and you living in the same house and you wanting to have the music up loud and the heating up and me going no I want it quiet and I want it colder there's going to be a conflict there and that's just at a very very simple level if you if you stratify the transforming care then I'm I'm going to ever so slightly get on my soapbox in that you know of the 2000 plus people who are within services who have lung disability and autism uh, you've got about a quarter of them who are pretty much stuck there because of the clunkiness of our mental health legislation and the interface between the mental health act capacity act and this issue around those those patients who are there as a result of placement by the courts and the legal solutions around that are hideously complicated and much too long for us to talk about today but essentially there's a whole group of people that we really just actually fundamentally can't really discharge at the moment Um, but there are a large number of people who are stuck who are warehoused um, who are warehoused in what are relatively standalone services uh you look at yew trees in essex you look at walton hall it's this issue of closed cultures it's this issue of long arm management um long arm mdt input um you know walton hall the mdt primarily weren't based there uh they were some were based 100 miles away also uh and you know so so they, if you lack if you if you strip away the management structure and you pair that back and then you make the mdt disconnected from the service then you don't have that senior leadership you don't have that senior oversight and you run the risk of quite punitive institutional cultures developing as we saw in the panorama documentaries and what you then have is you have services that aren't therapeutic and actually aren't geared towards, don't have the primary aim of discharge. You know, you, I'm not suggesting the independent sector 
doesn't have a role, although I probably am suggesting the independent sector doesn't have a role, does have, uh, yeah, doesn't have a role, but the difficulty is that you have to look at the motivation for the service provision. And if the motivation for the service provision is around the bottom line, then that's counter to putting the patient and putting the person at the heart of everything you do. Mm-hmm. If it sounds like when I look at the system, you've got these clear delineations between what is acute and some sort of acute ward-based or locked facility, and then you have community somewhere way over here. I'm waving towards the right because you can't see me, but that's what I'm doing. <laughs> I'm waving towards the right. Um, it's a long way It's away. a long way away. It feels like there's a disconnect because it seems so hard to get somebody out from this institutionalised care, whatever it might look like, and regardless of who's providing it's it. It's really hard. It's really hard. But even then when you you kind of untangle all of that mess, there's not really a lot of choice in in that the type of community provision or there doesn't seem to be enough of it to give people what they need for lifetime homes because, you know, in my experience when we're looking to help people you know, they're young adults or adults who've been locked in an institution for some time and they deserve a forever home. And that takes quite, like you said, the environment, it takes quite a unique approach and a lot of investment to build not only the right care around them with the right clinical input, but also find the right environment for them to live that meaningful life. And I think sometimes it just feels harder than it needs to be and we need to bring community and acute a, a bit closer together yeah i mean it i, th- I think there's a, there's a there's a number of different strands that produce sort of perverse disincentives across the entire system um, i think that the numbers are important i mean if we if you if we just take the numbers you know there's there's massive variation in bed price uh, some of it you can explain some of it you really can't but I think if you compare it to acute hospitals, intensive care units, you know, they're rather in the news at the moment with the pressure on intensive care units, you know, a bed there with at least one-to-one nursing support, you know, you're talking, you're talking about two, I think, I think it's probably about 1500 to two grand a day. So if we do two, let's say, or or maybe a bit less. So even if you say a thousand pounds a day then, or slightly more, you're talking three, four, five hundred thousand pounds a year. So you could be talking half a million pounds per bed per year. Um, now, the first thing is that if we can throw that much money at somebody in hospital, why can't we throw that much money at them in the community to prevent admission to hospital? So it's the whole, why does the money not follow the person argument? The second issue is our stratification of funding, because if you're within what's badged as secure services, so that's your low secure, medium secure, forensic type, then NHS England funded, national pot, top sliced, and CCG don't have to pay, and the local authority don't have to pay. And so the, you know, the, it's not costing the CCG and the local authority anything. And then even if you're not within those services, and interestingly, our service is CCG funded, then the local authority still aren't picking up a proportion of the tab. But upon discharge, then you, you know, you're talking the local authority picking up at least 50% of the ongoing costs of provision of care, uh, particularly into social care. 
um, because there's very few people out there who are CHC funded. Um, but even then, it's it's yeah. usually 50-50 split. But then you also have to add in the cost of where they're going to live because mm-hmm. I would say 98% of these individuals, they're not going to go back to the family home. And actually, quite rightly, they shouldn't. You mm-hmm. know, they should have the opportunity to live as independently as possible. possible. So then you add in, you know, financial implications of housing benefit yeah. and that adds a whole new element of complexity to the funding negotiations. But I think the, the other thing we have to factor in, in, you know, in terms of if we want to talk about discharge, yeah. which we'll get to, is 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 is, is, is this issue of, of transition, and transition is vitally important to this to this group. You know, we, we talk about a bunch of highly damaged individuals uh, with specific health and social care needs, comorbidities about the physical health, uh, often significant comorbid mental illness, uh, communication issues, um, and you, you know you 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 need a level of transition. You need a level of transition funding that again is fitted around that person. It's not a case of the that person fitting into the service. And if you know if that means like us that. 15 members of staff are going to move out to somewhere 300 miles away for a couple of months to do someone's transition on a rolling basis and hand that over to a local provider because that local provider can't come to us, then that's been done before and we'll do it again. But the only way we can do that is with sign-up around double funding. And double funding at those rates becomes very expensive. Do you think more needs to be done to build skills and expertise in the community and in these kind of and I, and I include my types of services in these long-term care providers because there seems to me as soon as you leave the, the walls of a hospital or a specialist inpatient unit there's kind of one model of care and it is it's kind of your social care type stuff with a maybe if you're lucky a sprinkling of clinical whereas for this type of customer and for a lot of our older people as well actually when you you move on and you've got a bit of cognitive impairment they would really benefit from ongoing therapeutic engagement that you maybe don't get from existing statutory services because they're already overstretched um i think it it's it's variable across the country there are some areas of very good practice or some areas of not very good practice um i think that one of the issues that you have, and this is true within the North East, is the fact that there is minimal health provision with people with an ASD diagnosis who don't have a learning disability. Mm -hmm. And I think that they end up being failed as a result. Um, And that that puts pressure on community mental health teams, community treatment teams, and they will acknowledge that they don't have the expertise. I think that there's some really good work going on in Sunderland around preparing people for a diagnosis of ASD and actually putting practically putting stuff in place around that in terms of getting people to understand their own diagnosis uh, and trying to therefore lead them away from health services almost. Uh, you know, let's be fair. You don't want to meet a psychiatrist, do you? <laughs> oh, I don't know. I, I don't. <laughs> um, um, You're quite pleasant sometimes, Chris. Yeah, it's a facade. <laughs> it's a facade. It's a facade. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I think the I think the other, the other thing is is that 
you know we you need you need a range of services i, I think th- and they can't be one size a, fits all you need a range of properties yeah. you need properties to be designed around that person yeah. um we had a fantastic discharge plan of somebody uh who went down down south somewhere uh being deliberately vague um <laughs> and they took a property they stripped it back they took into account sensory stuff visual impairment transitions the the lighting had to be non-flicker uh wall colors uh noise sensory garden and essentially built it from scratch and it's fab uh and we've managed to do if you have very good very understanding motivated commissioners you can do wonderful things but what you need is is it's almost it's the different imagine the diff- a provider that could do that at scale across the uk i wonder where we might find one of them home group <laughs> <laughs> but i i you know i think the the, the difficulty is that you got short-term commissioning yes and Short-term commissioning means that you, you're looking at the bottom line year on year rather than looking on the bottom line over someone's lifetime. So, for example, um, it's, that, it's that front loading. If you front load something and you pump prime it and you invest in it, invest yeah. in it early on, then, you know, let's, let's, you know, let's say two-year hospital admission, half a million pounds a year, million pounds, um, you get everything right, and then your care costs halve immediately on discharge and then sequentially go down over that time. That is significantly cheaper than an ongoing expense of three, four hundred thousand pounds every year for a warehousing and an inpatient service miles away from someone's home with no, no real quality of life. And I, I, for, for me, it's, it's, it's about that. It's about, again, it's about the money following the person. It's about saying, actually, this is a pot of cash. This is what this person needs. There may be times when they need a bit more. Mm-hmm. There may be times when we need a bit less. But actually, this is what this person needs. Yeah. You know, that's one of the things we look at is a service specification about six months post admission. Because actually, if you if you cost it and you spec it then, yeah. then what we believe is that over the remaining course of that someone's admission, while you identify the property and the care provider and you build it and you staff them and you train them and you do the transition and everything that goes with that, that person will get better. That person their quality of life will get better they will be happier they will be more comfortable their anxiety will reduce their comorbid physical challenge or reduce everything sport. and yeah. so actually but if you if but if you spec a service with that that you know it's like that, that wiggle room that that it means that anytime there's a little bump in a road you've got that reserve capacity that means you the service you doesn't the fail you prevent the readmission yeah. and all the trauma that goes with that I don't know, Chris, I'm interested in your opinion. What what do you think of the Transforming Care programme? Where do you think we're at with it? And, and what was it set up for in the first place? Let's I, are, are you sort of beginning. asking me whether I think it's failed? <laughs> well, I think has. we could, yeah. You know, we to, could say to, that, To a greater we? or lesser degree, it has failed to address the issues within the system. And, you know... What was it set not, up for? It's not exactly Ron C, yes. is it? It's not done what it says Said on, on the, the tin. tin. <laughs> What was it set up for, for people who don't know originally? Um, well, it depends which transforming care you mean. Mm. Because, you know, you could, if we want, we'd go back to the late 90s and we could talk about commu- care in the community, which is essentially 
what transforming yeah yeah people, what transforming yeah. care was rebadged 15 years later and if you go back before that you can talk about the the buckingham and the ely inquiries that you know 30 40 years ago and it's, it's almost this sort of perpetual cycle that we're in and that's not to sort of diminish the significance of it but i, I think the it's a, it's a it's a slightly different tranche of um people on each occasion um yes. you know you if you go back sufficiently far enough then you talk about the uh, the institutional colonies that were in existence prior to the inception of the 1946 national health service act uh, which defined a place where people receive treatment away from home as being a hospital, and so the colonies and the um, what the oh, what the are they called? Asylums. Thank you. Yes, yeah. uh, they they became hospitals. So in Newcastle, St Nicholas Hospital, you have um, St Andrew's Colony, which is now Northgate Hospital, Prudder Hospital, and you know you had St Mary's up at Stannington. They were the county asylums, county asylums, and the and the colonies. And so you then you, you know at its height. Prudder Hospital had about 2,000 people living there, quite genuinely living there from early age up until the point... You know. And they did quite a lot of meaningful occupation. They did. It wasn't all bad, yeah. was it? I, I, it was, well, yeah, there was quite a lot of bad. Quite a lot of bad. But you know, was if, some... you, if, you want, if you want to sort of frame it in like your <laughs> Dalton-esque um, eugenics <laughs> movement, then it was pretty bad yeah. in terms of separation from the gene pool. And quite, quite you know, people would be horrified that I use that, but quite genuinely, post-Second World War, it was... You know, what happened. The, this perception that everyone with a learning, you know, criminality is associated with low IQ. So therefore, if you move, separate move. people from with a learning disability from society, it'll make it a generally a better place. And I think, you know, in 2020, if we look around, then that, that's probably not true. Um, but, you know, so the first tranches were around that significant reduction. And, you know, if you go back, where are we, uh, 30 years, say, early 90s? You know, at its peak, you had 60,000, 70,000 people within what would have been the old colonies as they were. And now we're down to two and a half, two, two and a half, depends on which set of figures yes. you're looking at. Um, but I, as I said, I, I think that the, the, the difficulty is that the smaller the number, the greater the acuity, and generally... The more challenging it is. The more challenging they are perceived as being, Yeah. Um, I think there are quite a lot of people who actually should be within the community. Um, I think you, you have to factor in the fact that, again, we come back to the money, they're expensive. You have to come back to the fact that there isn't the capacity in the system. If you look to place someone now in the community, you can't go out and look at half a dozen service providers who have half a dozen locations and half a dozen staff teams waiting because you don't have that capacity within the system. And no locality will build that capacity and so firstly what that means you can't rapidly discharge people from hospital because you don't have tailor-made staff teams waiting to start to work with people and it also means that you don't have like your flying squad that you can throw at a service that's failing to keep someone in the community you, you know you don't have that crisis social care you do in some areas but again it's it's limited in what it can do but also there's a little bit around, we talked a bit earlier around that transition and transition can can take up to six months to get the right environment. And also I think what I've found is quite nice is when you engage the person, if, if possible, or their families in the recruitment to their staff team, if they're going to be part of their household, I think we have to have that switch from it's a service that we give you to these people become part of your 
I suppose your extended family in your life for a period of time and that that does take a little while and quite a lot of effort to do properly and I think that would be it would be nice to see some of this detail acknowledged I think in the you know the future plans for how you manage the inverted commas I'm doing finger movements um for transforming care program question where do you start and there are lots of people out you know I don't have a learning disability I don't have autism. I'm a parent, but I'm not a parent to a child with um, significant multiple complex needs or a diagnosed VLD or ASD. So I, you know, I, I'm cautious as to pontificating about what we should do because actually there are a lot of other people out there who are equally or significantly more qualified to talk about the ways in which that this should happen. And they do talk about it, don't they? Because there's they, lots of noise, yeah. but it doesn't seem to often, from what I can see, it just hasn't seemed to have landed, has it, in terms of that change that we need to see? It's systemic failure. That's, you know, that's a terrible thing to say, but it is. It's, it's systemic failure. It's, it's, it, this is a whole systems issue. You know, you, you can take it all the way back to issues in send provision you can take it back to the pairing back in social care you can take it to the fact that actually we pay social care staff really badly we do if you compare them to other sectors and you compare us to other countries we pay our social care staff who we demand a huge amount of we pay them badly yeah we do and the difficulty with that is you will have a social care provider you will set up a service you will train the staff, you will train the staff very, very well. They will become experts in what they do. They'll become experts in ASD. They'll become experts in differentiated communication. They'll become experts in PBS, PBS uh, functional analysis. Yeah. Uh, and then suddenly they go, oh, I can get a better job or I can get a better paid job because I'm really good at this. And then they leave. And that's really good for them. But the problem is that in terms of the system, then you have this sort of hump 12 to 18 months after you place somebody within the community that actually a lot of the staff leave because they've got a huge amount of skill and they go and do it somewhere else or they go into nursing or they go into an allied health professional role. And then firstly, you lose the organisational memory about the person and the fact that actually... They really need their laxatives, otherwise they're going to get constipated. And if they get constipated, then they'll die. Yeah. No, and I don't sugarcoat that because there's been examples where that's happened. Yeah. Quite literally, people have not had their medication and died of constipation because there wasn't the organisational memory to remember that's really significant for them. Now, some of that's about and that's happened in hospitals as well, that's not hap- just yeah. in adult no, social care. Let's, no. let's be honest. No, no, yeah. no, no. That's happened in hospitals as well, um, and it's a travesty. It is. It should never happen. Um, but it's, uh, you know, there's, 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 oh God, there's so many strands to this. Um, there's the social care issue. There's the fact that actually what we should be doing is preventing people needing hospital admission because we should have adequate, robust community provision. We should have a differentiated range of community provision with slack within the system to respond to crisis. You know, if we can have crisis and hospital beds for people with acute deteriorations within their mental health, why can't we have it here for... Um, people who learn disability or ASD who are either experiencing acute situations in their mental health or are experiencing life events or distress because, you know, what they don't need is 
shipping off to a warehouse service 200 miles away from home. It does speak to the integration agenda, though, doesn't it? Yeah. It does. It does sound to me, and we're to, I'm talking very superficially, very high level here. But the closer that social care and healthcare, we can move them closer together. It sounds like then we'll have more fluidity between colleagues and staff teams and people movement of those skills. And I, personally, I would like to see stronger career pathways so people can stay in social care and grow, I don't know, we're seeing um, an increase in positive behaviour support, expertise, which isn't necessarily a purely clinical thing. Um, I would I would love to see that. I think that would really strengthen the offer and give people, you know, more of a career opportunity so they don't always have to move into healthcare. But if you were to strengthen the links between health and social care, then, you know, let's let's think of something innovative. What about when someone's admitted to hospital, their care team goes with them? Yeah. What about... If you're going to admit them to hospital, you say, this person needs admitting to hospital, um, and we won't get into the whole argument about the threshold for admitting to people to yep. hospital, but, you know, and then actually you don't admit them to hospital, you identify the bed, and all the resources that go with that bed Maybe go out to, to that them. person in their home. But Absolutely. for that, you have, to have, you have to have the infrastructure, you have to have the service provision, you have to have the accommodation that allows you to do that. And you also have to have the sign-up from health and social care and commissioners and everyone that goes with that. Yeah, it's big you also system have, change. You also, you also have to have a legal framework that allows you to do it uh, because there are, you know, the, the, the interface between the Mental Health Act, Mental Capacity Act, dolls is clunky at best. And, and there's so many little nuanced pitfalls within it. Um, some, quite rightly so, but others actually hinder the system. Yeah, agreed. So everybody's, you know, we've, we've covered quite a lot, haven't we? We could probably talk forever on any given subject. <laughs> but, but this is part of the problem. It is. Part of the problem is that we have a lot of talking on this subject. I've just been sitting on the, the expert advisory group for the, the CQC's thematic review around restraint, seclusion, segregation. And with a lot of the people who, as I say, know a lot more about this than me and have personal experiences or lived experience as well and actually the answers are there it's just there's there's an intransigence within the system to allow it to happen and some of that is dare i say it political short-termism we had an amended mental health act a decade ago no it wasn't a decade no. ago but it, it was a number of it's just gone off the radar the the mental capacity liberty protection safeguards although interestingly they amended out the phrase liberty protection safeguards doesn't actually exist pop fact for you um <laughs> then you know again we've that's been delayed and been delayed and that's partly covid related but i think there's an appetite or a lack of appetite to sort of get on with it and i, I think the, the difficulty that goes with that is we know what needs doing you need whole systems change, you need pool budgets, you need sign-up, you need a broader range of service providers, you need much more comprehensive accommodation solutions, you need accommodation to be built, you need specification and provision of accommodation to be taken into consideration when it's built, rather than trying to shoehorn it in afterwards, um, and you need to place service users, experts, families at the heart of that in terms of building a pathway of care as i said that actually goes back to initial identification diagnosis send education and all the things that go with that and do you think that this radical transformation is likely 
as I, I said, I, sorry, I, I went all the way around that and then didn't you come did, back yeah, to sort of political mm. short-termism. But it's like, you know, we have a five-year parliamentary cycle. You, you, refre- you know, and actually, let's be fair, over the last five years, we've had like a one-year parliamentary cycle multiple <laughs> times. And, and so, you're, you know, you're having to refresh that every single time. You know, there was some very good... Sorry, there's clicking noise. There I think the ceiling's about the ceiling to fall was in. Come um, <laughs> the um, you know, you've got some very good people. You know, you've got the uh, Joint Committee on Human Rights, the parliamentary. It's, it's it's fantastic. It does fantastic challenge. You know, you've got um, the Equality and Human Rights Commission with their uh, letters before action. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. things like that are good stuff that's happening by which yeah. by which change can be you know driven. But but it shouldn't be shouldn't have to be so hard no because there are good providers out there aren't there there are there are great things that are happening it's just yeah it just feels a bit too more difficult than it it should be if we actually all work in a person-centered way because the only people that we let down are those individuals that really suffer in any way what are we trying to do we are trying to discharge people from hospital to accommodation and care that meets their needs on a long-term basis. So they can live great lives. It's, they deserve I, great lives. When, and when you put it down to the yep. really bare fact, the nuts and bolts of it, actually, that's, that's not complex. No, I like that. We'll end on that note. That's a good summary. The one last, the one thing that I did want to touch upon is we we would be remiss if we didn't mention the big C, wouldn't we? And that's not the can, that's not cancer. That's the big C is COVID at the moment. Mm-hmm. It's everywhere. Um, quite, quite, quite literally. literally in the northeast, yes. <laughs> yeah, I also feel I should say we are very socially distanced. Um, you know, we're not sat next to each other. You f- I feel we continuously have to qualify ha- where we're where we're sat when we've left our homes. Um, how do you well we know that this is negatively impacted on those people who are stuck in hospitals or care homes and their ability to transition into yeah. the community you did a really uh, an interesting tweet about that and deprivation of liberties i think it was um how do you feel about that do you think it's going to get worse over christmas i i think that what hasn't been seen yet is the extent of the impact on COVID, sorry, of COVID on people's mental health. Yeah. It's not been recognised yet. It's huge. It's unimaginable. Mm-hmm. It sounds sensationalist, but it's the next ticking time bomb, if you like. You know, Absolutely. it's the, the if, you, if you take, if you, if you take the, you know, we'll, we'll limit this to the sort of the ASD population. And if you limit it to the, to the ASD population, then what we've done We've got some gesticulation here. What we've we've done is we've introduced a new set of rules and we know how people with ASD, you know, I'm making a very sweeping generalisation, but there's, you know, in terms of being concrete and rule-bound and predictability and everything that goes with that. So we've introduced a set of rules. We then intermittently, arbitrarily change those rules without any real reason. Yeah. And that might sound controversial. Or without any real evidence. Why do we do that? Well, I don't know, because we've been told. Yes, but why? Yeah. Well, what's the evidence? And what impact might those have? Yes. Then what we do is we say, you can't go out, you can't go out, you can't mingle, you can't mix, you can't go out, you can't see anybody. 
Oh, but now you can. But now you can't. But the things you could do before, that's all shut. So although you can go out, you can't gainfully go and do anything because it doesn't actually have any merit because nothing's open. <laughs> and we, why are we then surprised that people are decompensating and going, yeah, but that's not, you know, or their people's anxiety levels are going up. Or actually they're experiencing essentially like bereavement reactions because for, for, for an arbitrary reason they don't understand. They can't see people. They can't see family. Do the family still exist? Are they alive? You know, and it's, it's how do you communicate that? And it's, and that's, I mean, in terms of the community stuff that I do, that's what we're seeing. That's what we're seeing. And we're seeing people who are really struggling with the fundamentals of lockdown because actually it's not predictable. It's not obvious. And it's impacted upon every sphere of their life in a way that I think that from the outside people genuinely just don't get i mean for me and you the rules change it's just like i don't quite know i am you know if you think about that for someone who doesn't have that level of cognitive plasticity then it's just it compounds it and i you know and that's the same for the inpatient population it is especially when we say we're going to lock you all down you can't see your loved ones Mm -hmm. i know there's been a huge outcry from our colleagues at the national care forum talking about you know the impact on older people i think it's even more pronounced on the impact for those with learning disabilities because it's just like their families aren't there anymore i know from a lot of the families that we're working with the impact has been huge yeah i yeah it has and I, th- I think the you know you've got there's a very clear human rights angle. Yeah. You know the if you look at services that introduce complete bans on visits, and some that I've been to still have those. Yeah. Those are blanket restrictions, uh, which you shouldn't really be doing. Um, and there's they're open to significant legal challenge actually in 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 the validity and legality of what's happening and i i you know i think that the difficulty is that the guidance keeps changing and so you can you can set up something one week and then the next week when you're going to enact it the rules have all changed and i think I i think that you know for me as a you know as a clinician that's irritating for the family and for the person that's heartbreaking. I think the bit that I find the most difficult, and I'm going to use my wonderful grandma in this analogy. She said to me, she's 88, wonderful, very active. And she said to me, if I can't see my family, what else am I living for? That's something that she looks forward to. She enjoys. She's, we're all a huge part of her life. And she said, what, what am I doing if I, if I can't have that. And I think she's got full cognitive function. She's totally with it. She gets it. But imagine if you feel like that, but you can't express yourself. It's just terrifying. But, but also imagine if that's compounded by the fact that within previous services, yeah. you have been punished yes. by being told, if you're not good, you can't see your family. Or you go in seclusion, yeah. Or you go in seclusion. I agree. You know, then and now what we're doing is saying, oh no, you can't see your family. Then the the, the immediate assumption there is is firstly, well, what have I done wrong, and secondly, it's re-traumatizing. Yeah. So in conclusion, if we ruled the world, we would like to then, see on the basis of how long we chatted for, we'd never get anything done. On the <laughs> on the basis that we can talk for England and we're very opinionated, we would like to see some acknowledgement of 
the blanket rules and their impact on the most vulnerable is what I'd like to end on because I think that that's a fair that would be a fair request wouldn't it really I'd also like people to be honest yep if you don't have a service be honest about it yeah if it's going to take a year be honest about it yeah you know if 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 you're sat there going I don't understand what this person's needs are and how we meet them fine be honest about it yeah if you sat there going, we don't have a very good service at the moment, then people won't be honest about that, let's be fair. But, you know. Well, that's a shame, isn't that's, it? But that's half the problem. It is. I think that feels like a good place to wrap up and conclude our COVID piece. I'd like to say thank you so much to Chris for joining me today. I really hope that we can get you back on another podcast in the future. That's it from us for today. We've heard a lot about the challenges that have been faced with the Transforming Care programme. So next time, we're going to share how Home Group is rising to this challenge. I'm really looking forward to it. See you next time. Goodbye. Goodbye.